Well, good morning. My name is Blake. If you're new here, what we do is we just walk through the Bible and we're in the book of Romans. So you picked a good Sunday. Romans is the greatest letter ever written. And we are in the great chapter eight, which I think is the greatest chapter ever written. So we're here for a few more weeks and uh, we just walk through it. And whatever we have in the passage is what we're going to have for the sermon. We think that's a really important way for churches to submit to God by submitting to his word. So we're in Romans 8. Verse 18 this morning, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 888, I believe. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I want us to look this morning at three groanings. We have the creation groaning, we have we ourselves groaning, and we have the Spirit groaning. And so first, the creation groans. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here we learn the creation is eagerly waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Now, it's really important, ladies, that in the first century, it was only the son who received the inheritance. And so it's important that it says sons and not sons and daughters or not children because you would lose out on that fact. So in this sense, every person, male or female, is a son of God in that every person who is in Christ will receive the inheritance. And he says the creation is waiting eagerly this this word paints a picture that the creation is on tiptoe the picture of someone craning their neck to see what's ahead the whole created order is rubbernecking it knows that when the sons of god the children of god are revealed it's next in line it's like a child on the eve before christmas morning creation is waiting eagerly with head raised eagerly waiting on God to come and make it all right. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope. So here we see that the creation was subjected, in the scorch it's subjected by God to futility, to frustration. It's the same word that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes again and again. Just chapter 1, verse 2, vanity, vanity of vanities. All is vanity, futility, frustration. Creation is fallen. In many ways, this verse here is Paul's commentary on Genesis chapter 3. Listen to Genesis three seventeen. And to Adam, he said, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the fields. The whole ground is cursed. The whole creation subject to futility. Thorns and thistles will be produced. We had some friends in a church when we served in Houston, and he would talk about any time he would try to fix anything, he would have to account a couple extra hours and a couple, you know, a couple hundred extra dollars for what he called the Bedeker factor. His last name was Bedeker. So he just knew. Anytime he's going to do anything, he's got to account for it. We just call it the fallen world factor. If we're going to do something, you've got to count on something going wrong. Thorns and thistles, subjected to futility, death, decay, decomposition, deterioration, hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, fires. It's a broken world. It's a fallen world. It's a ruthless world. And it's even the animal kingdom, fallen, right? We're all thankful for that glass at the zoo, aren't we? Remember, just a couple years ago, it was already when we were here, one of the jaguars at the Abilene Zoo, remember that, got out? They didn't know how. There was no open door, but a jaguar got out and made its way over to the uh, spider monkeys. Didn't go well. (laughs) Whole created order is not the way it's supposed to be, even animals. It's a fallen world. But... The vision of Romans 8 is that it won't always be that way, right? It was subjected, but it was subjected in hope. Look at verse 21. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation was in bondage to corruption. The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Labor is agonizing. So I'm told. I've witnessed it a few times. Witnessed it five times. But the thing about labor pains is as excruciating as they are, aren't they quickly forgotten once they are over? Right? You've never seen a woman finish the labor pains and have a baby and say, you know what? Can you just hold this for a minute? Oh, man, let me recover. That was so terrible. No, forgotten. I mean, forgotten in an instant when that baby's in her arms. Over and forgotten. Here's how Jesus put it. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And he gives the example, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Here we see that creation is in labor. But one day, 
One day, creation itself will be set free. Creation will be liberated. The whole world redeems. God is not anti-creation. God created and said, not only is it good, it's very good. God is for creation. He is pro-creation. Creation will obtain the freedom that we will obtain, the freedom of the glory of God, freed from the curse of sin. That was always the plan, by the way. That's why he created, and that's why he made the promises to Abraham that he did. Do you remember chapter 4? Flip back there in case you weren't here. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham, this is Genesis 12 and following, where God made those promises. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And we talked, if you remember that sermon, we talked about Romans 4. There's a word for land. If Abraham would have only been promised a small piece of land, he could have used the word for land. The word land is gay. He uses the word instead cosmos. And from that sermon, we showed from the Bible that the land, the promised land, a little small strip in the Middle East was actually a type, a pointer that pointed forward to the whole world redeemed, pointed beyond itself. And we know that because the word heir is only used two times in the whole book of Romans. Romans 4.13 and Romans 8.17. If you remember from last week that we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, which leads into this context, heirs of what? Heirs of the whole world. This was always God's plan. All nations blessed living on a redeemed world under King Jesus. God's plan is cosmic in scope. Here's how the prophet Isaiah spoke of it, Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Currently, how do wolves and lambs dwell together? Lambs usually dwell inside the wolves, right? In, not with. But here in this day, in the new creation, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. There'll be harmony. It'll all be good again. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Isaiah 55 verse 12 speaks of the mountains and the hills breaking forth and singing and the trees of the field clapping their hands. Isaiah 65 verse 17 says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. There wasn't really a word that encompassed the earth and the heavens. What he really means is universe. I'll create a new universe. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And Isaiah 65, towards the end, verse 25 says again, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. There'll be no need for the glass at the zoo. 
Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. And then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Psalm 98, 8, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. The creation is eagerly waiting. The creation's on its tiptoe, just waiting. When will he come back and make all things right? And Jesus spoke of this. Jesus spoke of the redemption of all creation a couple of times. In Matthew 5, verse 5, he says, The meek shall inherit the earth. In Matthew 19, he speaks of the renewal of all things. It's actually one word. It's this word, one word. It's two words put together to make one word, and it's palingenesia. Palin means again. You can hear Genesia, right? Genesia. So we have the again Genesis. We have the new world. We have the regeneration at the renewal of all things, Jesus says. In Acts 3, Peter speaks of the restoration of all things of which the prophets spoke. Peter in his letter says this in 2 Peter 3.13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, a whole new world, free of sin, dwelling with the Lord, dwelling with his people. Revelation says that a city is going to come down. So the storyline of scripture moves from a garden to a city, and this city is going to come down from heaven to earth, and we're going to be with the Lord, unmediated access to him. In fact, there's really two main cubes in the whole Bible. One cube is the Holy of Holies. That's where that special place where only the high priest of Israel could enter to get intimate access with the Lord. And he could only do it one time a year. And the book of Revelation says that whole city will lie four square. The whole city, a massive, most holy place where all the saints have full access. So first, we have the creation groaning, but not only the creation. Second, we ourselves groan. We see that in verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the creation groans and we groan. We groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought we already were adopted. Didn't we see that last week? We did. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. As Nathan unpacked for us so well. 815, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what does it mean that we're eagerly waiting for adoption? Well, we're adopted, but not yet in the fullness of it. We live between this already not yet of God's promises, between the first coming and the second coming. And so, yes, we have been adopted legally. We are declared children of God, but we do not yet, we have not yet received the fullness of family resemblance. 
And right now we know we're the children of God, but no one else really knows. But others will be shown on that day. As verse 19 says, the children of God will be revealed on that day. God will lift the veil and show who are truly his. So we eagerly wait for full adoption. We also eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23. What is the redemption of our bodies? It's the resurrection. Again, we have been redeemed. That's what Romans 3 and 4 and 5 is about. Already, but not yet. Already redeemed, but not yet in its fullness. We've been redeemed from the penalty of sin. That's been taken care of by Christ's cross. We are in, in process of being redeemed from the power of sin. We saw that in Romans 6. But one day, we will be redeemed from the very presence of sin. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That day's not yet. That's what we wait for, the redemption of our bodies. We've been redeemed spiritually, but not yet physically. So we await the consummation of our redemption. We await resurrection from the dead. But it's a guarantee for those who trusted Jesus. What God started, he promises he will bring to completion. That's why verse 24 says we were saved in hope. Aorist tense, decisively saved in the past, but saved in hope. Past tense, but with future expectation. And we can't see it, else it wouldn't be hope, he says. But we trust God. We trust God and we believe his promises. Therefore, we wait for it with patience says we groan and we wait eagerly. I wonder, do you consider your own wait eager? Are you eager for his coming? Do you pray for the Lord's return? That's a really good test case. How often do you pray, Lord, come? I fear that we're too attached to this world to pray such prayers. I fear that our wait's not eager at all because we like it here. The Puritan William Grinnell said, nothing is more contrary to a heavenly hope than an earthly heart. We wait eagerly and we groan inwardly. And we groan because life is hard. We groan because this age is characterized by suffering. Saw that last week. Look at verse 17. If we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice that. We want to inherit the worlds, provided we suffer in order that we may be glorified with him. We will inherit if we suffer. That's just the pattern of the Christian life. Suffering, then glory. This life, largely hard. Life to come, no trials whatsoever. Suffering in this age, glory in the age to come. And here's the key to enduring. He tells us having the right perspective is the key to enduring this age of suffering that we might make it to glory. Notice what he says there in verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
He says, I consider, the word can be translated reckon or calculate. One commentator says this, it's having a firm conviction reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel. So the key to enduring the suffering, just like the key to so much in the Christian life, is having the right perspective. We must consider, we must reckon that the present sufferings are nothing in light of the future glory. We must reflect on the brevity of this life and the glory of eternity. We must have the long view. And when we do, there is no comparison. Even if our entire lives are really, really difficult, and that's some of you. Even if we have a crummy 90 years, what is that to eternity? With our king, without sin. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but the scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So what we've got to do is we've got to consider. We've got to compare glory to present reality. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. I love that imagery. We don't lose heart. We don't get discouraged. Why? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. You hear those contrasts? Outwardly wasting away, inwardly renewed day by day. Affliction is only light. It's momentary. Glory is eternal. It is weighty. It is beyond comparison. The earthly things are transient. They're fleeting. They're temporary. The unseen things are eternal. They're never ending. We must weigh suffering in light of the glory of heaven. And when we weigh that, suffering is on one side of the scale. It's like a little feather. And glory is on the other side of the scale. And it's like an overweight sumo wrestler in wet sweatpants. (laughs) Zero comparison. Cancer, financial loss, persecution, hurt, family struggles, none of it compares. It doesn't even come close. The present circumstances in light of eternity are like one night in an inconvenient hotel. Do you believe this? You must consider it to be true. You must reckon it. You must calculate. Reckon it. Do we believe in eternity? In some ways, I feel like that's my main job as a pastor is to help the people of God believe in eternity. Let's not be so short-sighted and waste our life 
First Peter 5.10, and after you've suffered a little while, because that's what life is, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So we groan, but notice how he describes us. He said, we who have the first fruits of the spirit groan. The first fruits is that first batch. It's that foretaste of what's to come. The beginning of the harvest and the pledge that the full harvest is on the way. Here's how Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 put it. It says, when we believe in Jesus, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. It's guaranteed that more is coming. 2 Corinthians 1 says the same thing. Verse 22, God has put his seal on us and he's given us his spirit as a guarantee. When we trust in Jesus, we receive the spirit. That's the first fruits. That's a guarantee we will inherit the world. So we groan. We groan because our present experience, it's just the first stage. We are experiencing redemption. We are experiencing freedom but it's just a foretaste of what's to come. Already, but not yet in the fullness. We have the spirit, yet we groan. Life is hard. And this is where the prosperity gospel that says, if you just have enough faith, you'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous is such garbage. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the opposite. Really what the problem with the prosperity gospel is their timetable's off. They say, if you'll just have enough faith, everything will go well for you. You'll have everything you need. You won't be sick. You'll have all you need. Problem is, that's not till glory, right? They're putting that. They're putting the prosperity on this side of the equation, and we're not there yet. We're in the suffering side. Now, when glory comes, when Jesus returns, there will be no sickness. We will have all we need, but that's not yet. The timetable's off. By the way, footnote, there's a really good documentary out called American Gospel. You can rent it on Amazon Prime. You could buy it. Uh, we've got some copies, if you want to borrow it, that critiques the prosperity gospel. It's really important because in many ways it is the American gospel. Just not, it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches suffering, then glory. We're not promised the glory yet. Present life is largely suffering, and so we're not unrealistic. So many evangelical churches are unrealistic and they're happy, clappy, fake. I don't want Southside to be that kind of church. I want us to be real about how hard life is sometimes. And yet, how good God is in the midst of it. I want us to be able to lament together. I want us to be able to groan together. Again, because it's biblical. Just read the Psalms. Just read Lamentations. Just read the prayers of Jeremiah. Read the book of Job. The Christian life is full of groaning. Just look around. Just watch the news. All over the place, we just see hatred and violence and compromise and apostasy. The celebration of apostasy, persecution, gossip, slander, cancer, conflict, unmet expectations, unfulfilled desires, infertility, loneliness, abandonment, on and on and on. Great theologian in The Princess Bride said, life is pain, highness. Anyone, says, anyone who says differently is selling something. Life is pain. We can be sorrowful. I love the way 2 Corinthians puts it. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Life is hard, but it's worth it. 
And so we got to reckon and we realize that our present suffering are just a blip on the screen when compared to glory. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, but thirdly, we're not the only one that groans. The Spirit groans. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Man, isn't this encouraging? We are weak. We need help. And praise God, he's given us a helper. The Spirit who helps us in our weakness. We often don't know what to pray. We often don't know how to pray. Sometimes we don't know what the Lord's will is. We're unclear about it. God has given us the spirit who intercedes on our behalf with wordless groans. Now, sometimes uh, charismatic Christians will say this is about speaking in tongues. It's not about speaking in tongues. They're wordless. It's not that they're inexpressible. It's that they're unexpressed. This is the spirit's groanings, and there's no words to it. Tongues were words. They were expressed in words so that people could understand them and people could interpret them. But as the book of 1 Corinthians shows us, the gift of tongues was not for every Christian. It was only for some. This gift, this help is for every believer. The Spirit intercedes for every believer. He identifies with our groans. God himself is involved with our prayer life. Prayer is a Trinitarian exercise. Let's flip over to 8 again, 8 verse 15. We already read it. But notice this emphasis, this help we receive from God himself in our prayer. 8.15, we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry as we pray. We pray, Abba, Father, and the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Man, I hope this is encouraging to your prayer life. When we don't know what to pray, even when we ask the wrong things, God the Spirit is there to help. So the creation groans, we groan, the Spirit groans. So how then should we respond to these three groanings, this symphony of sighs? Well, briefly, five responses. Number one is know the story. Know the story of the Bible. And I mean capital S story. Easiest way to summarize the story of Bible is creation to new creation. Well, there's a lot in between it, but that's the simplest way. There's another way that's just using four little hooks, and that's creation, fall, redemption, new creation. So God created a good world. It was very good. In comes sin at the fall, and everything is ruined. It's a great tragedy. The ground is cursed. We're cursed. Then we have redemption starting in Genesis 3.15 to the rest of the Bible. Where God's making things right, but he won't ever make it all right until new creation when he will put all things to right. So creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Scripture tells a story. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Leslie Newbig, and he was a missionary to India, and he loved to recount this story of an encounter with a Hindu scholar who challenged him with these words. He said to the missionary, he said, this Hindu scholar said, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find in your Bible... 
a unique interpretation of universal history. The history of the whole creation and the history of the human race. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. End quote. And he's right. It is a unique interpretation of universal history. It's not a rule book. It's not a book of moralistic tales. It is a grand story of the God who redeems. little footnote, if you have kids and you don't come to Sundays at 9.30 or Wednesdays at 6, let me encourage you to because we use this curriculum called the Gospel Project that is fantastic of keeping the big picture, keeping the story of Scripture in mind. And I don't know about you, I didn't understand the story of Scripture for many years into my Christian life. Didn't realize it was one capital S story. So if you're a parent, bring them here. If you're not a parent and you want to learn, you ought to come teach these little ones because then you'll be exposed to our curriculum. And you'll learn yourself as you teach others. Let the curriculum guide you. Number one, know the story. Number two, expand your hope. Expand your hope. All too often, our vision of the future as Christians is anemic. It is weak. It is truncated. It is floaty. It is disembodied, fat little angels on clouds, ethereal, boring, if we're honest. So expand your hope. Expand your hope. Let's do a little bit of eschatology here. Eschatology is the study of last things. Let's do some eschatology in two minutes. Now, you probably know these things are debated. So here's my, here's my take of how it's going to go down. In many ways, the only reason anyone goes to heaven is because of sin. What do I mean by that? The original intent was never for Adam to leave this earth. He was created. He was to have dominion. Him and Eve were to have dominion and spread basically the Garden of Eden until the garden, the special presence of God, covered the whole world. It's only because of sin that there's death, right? And so how does it go down? I think it goes down like this. If the Lord doesn't return in our generation, I pray that he does. I don't think he will. The Bible says that for him, one day is a thousand years. And so we're in 2019. We're in two days. I think we've got quite a long time before the Lord will return. So let's say that he doesn't in our generation. At some point, we're going to die sooner than later. And when we die, our soul and our body will be torn asunder. And that was never God's original intent. Our body will go into the grave. Our soul will go to heaven. It'll be with the Lord. I think the Bible teaches that really clearly. To be with the Lord is better, Paul says. Jesus tells that thief, you'll be with me in paradise today. So the body remains. The soul goes to heaven to be with the Lord. And then when he returns, those who are alive when he returns will meet him in the air and escort the king back to his domain. Those of us who have died will be raised from the dead. And our body and our soul will be reconnected like the original intent. We will have resurrection bodies. We will be transformed and we will live here on this redeemed world. Romans 8, not only we, but the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Is your hope that big? I think most of us need to have a more earthy hope because it's physical resurrection bodies on a physical world, this world just without sin. Then righteousness will dwell. So we'll often say, this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. A lot of truth to that. But biblically, in some ways, it's more accurate to say heaven's not my home. I'm just passing through. Because we will go to heaven and our soul will be there, but it's not eternal. 
the eternal state is our soul back with our body on this world redeems. So we sing around Christmas time, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the grounds. It's Genesis 3 language, right? Thorns and thistles. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? Everywhere. How far will he make his blessings flow? Everywhere. Joy to the world. The glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so know the story and expand your hope. Number three. Embrace the pattern. Embrace the pattern. The pattern of the Christian life is suffering, then glory. And so we need to set our expectations accordingly. Life's not easy. When you become a Christian, it doesn't get easier. Sometimes it gets harder. It was a pattern of Jesus. For him, it was suffering, then glory. It's the pattern for us. It's the pattern for creation. Life is hard. It will stay hard, but glory is coming and it's worth it, which is related to the fourth response. We need to contemplate. We need to consider. We need to reckon that as hard as these present sufferings are, they are not worth comparing with what's coming. It's a mental exercise to reckon present sufferings in light of future glory, to consider them, to dwell on eternity, to take the long view, to begin with the end in mind, to weigh our life and weigh glory, contemplate it and seeing that it is worth it. And then fifthly, pray boldly. Because you can't go wrong. And when you do go wrong, the spirit will help. Approach the throne of grace with boldness. How big are your prayers? Ask big and the spirit will help. He will guide you. He will help you in your weakness. He will intercede on your behalf and pray with hope. Knowing one day, groaning will give way to glory. Come, Lord Jesus.